Food bank usage in the city of Toronto has doubled in the past year. Hamilton Wentworth District School Board trustee being investigated for pro-Palestinian social media posts. Doug Ford's ministers are barely using their government-issued cell phones, if at all. The rich are getting even more rich, and M23 has taken back a village in the Democratic Republic of Congo that was the site where they carried out a UN-alleged massacre last year. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November 15th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. Today we start in Toronto, and sorry folks, the news lineup for this morning is very Ontario heavy. In fact, it's very GTA heavy. Anyway, it's all important. Okay, Cody Wilson from CP24 is reporting that food bank users in the city of Toronto have doubled this year. There have been 2.53 million visits to a food bank in Toronto this year, a 51% increase over last year, and the highest usage ever tracked. The authors of the report that released these figures said that it's likely that Toronto food bank usage will surpass 3 million by the end of the year. Now, we're talking about usage. When we shift to clients themselves, the increase is much higher. Food banks have had a 154% increase in new clients. That is 12,000 new people added to the list of clients every month. The median monthly income for the users is just 1,131. To put that into perspective, annual ODSP rates are a paltry $1,308 per month, and the base rate for someone on Ontario Works is $733 per month. Average rent for a one-bedroom apartment in the city is $2,600 a month. Now, I just added these numbers into the report to give you some context, though Wilson does grab the Ontario Works figure from the report and adds it further down in the story. Of course, it's become standard to have stories like this go through very crisis-level data from reports and not pose any questions to the mayor or to the premier or to any politician whose fault it is that this might be happening or who has the power to fix it. It's just the summary of a new report and all that readers get from reading it is the same that they'd get from reading the actual report or the report's summary or probably even just a paragraph in the report. It leaves us with a feeling of profound doom and no idea about how to actually fix what the crisis is. Next to Hamilton. Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Trustee Sabrina Dehab is being investigated for saying pro-Palestinian things on her social media accounts. The investigation has been launched, accusing Dehab of breach of the Code of Conduct for Trustees. Here is what her statement says. Quote, I am concerned that this investigation is an attempt to silence me for my vocal condemnation of Israeli apartheid and reprimand me for my posts about protests that were calling for the end of the siege of Gaza. It's important to note that students across Ontario's education system are telling us that they are facing repercussions for daring to say free Palestine. They are being silenced and threatened with disciplinary measures, amongst other serious incidents of anti-Palestinian racism. To students across Ontario, know that I have your back and that your voice is important. 
important. You deserve a learning space free from anti-Palestinian racism and Islamophobia. I call on Minister Lecce to unequivocally condemn anti-Palestinian racism and Islamophobia across Ontario's education system and to take steps to ensure all students are safe in their schools, unquote. Now, it isn't likely that Dahab will get a useful response from Stephen Leach's. I mean, Lecce. Oops, sorry. Autocorrect. <laughs> His Twitter feed is full of posts of him being angry, still at Sarah Jama for questioning the official line of the IDF and promising to intervene in the case of a teacher in the Peel School Board who correctly identifies that anti-Zionist graffiti shown in a photo isn't anti-Semitic. It's also noteworthy that the Hamilton-Wentworth School Board has for years had trustees repeatedly do racist things. It's not super compelling to think that they will be able to manage the allegations they've brought against Dahab in a fair and neutral manner. Now, let's stick to news about Stephen Lecce being bad at his job. Journalists have been digging into Doug Ford, trying to get access to his personal cell phone records to help illuminate whether or not he's been using personal devices to do corruption. In the process of these investigations, Isaac Callan and Colin DeMello report that prominent cabinet ministers had, quote, large stretches of inactivity on their official devices when critical government decisions were being made, unquote. Hmm, isn't that curious? Freedom of information requests show that during moments that global calls crucial in their ministries, the ministers of education, finance, health, housing, and transportation either didn't make a single phone call or barely used their government-issued phones. Journalists asked for records for one-month periods for each minister at a time that they were involved in big decisions. Ministers mostly justified this by saying that they are meeting people in person or through Microsoft Teams. While Stephen Lecce was dealing with a wildcat strike across Ontario, shutting down the province's schools, he was using his cell phone for a whole minute in the month of November 2022. Lecce's office explains this by saying they were working through a negotiator who, I guess, we are supposed to believe the minister never actually needed to call or he never actually needed to call anybody who had to then call the negotiator. I mean, they think that we're stupid, but anyway, let's keep going. While finalizing the 2023 budget, Peter Bethlenfalvy used his phone for two minutes in all of March 2023. Caroline Mulrooney and Steve Clark used their phones 10 times more than Bethlenfalvy did. At 20 minutes each over an entire month where both ministers had big things happening in their portfolios. Now, Callan and DeMello cannot say this, but I can. They are obviously using private phones to communicate. I looked at my own cell phone use. And for example, last Friday, which was a day where I was coordinating a press conference and managing several people, I was on my cell phone for 32 minutes alone on Friday in one day, not over an entire month. It would be impossible to imagine that rather than hopping on a quick call, Caroline Marooney is booting up the old Teams machine to talk to people. I'm excited to see what Global News gets as they fight for more access to more records. But again, it's important that we're very clear here. These people are lying. They are obviously communicating on different phone platforms and they're communicating on phone platforms that can't be accessed by journalists, which is the fundamental problem in this story. 
Next, to national news, which is a thread that runs through all of the previous stories and, frankly, all stories always in all of Canada. A new StatsCan report is showing that our campaign to eat the rich has just gotten more succulent. The richest people in Canada were paid 10% on average more in annual salaries in 2021. Kevin Jiang from the Toronto Star notes that the salary increase happened alongside, quote, a time when the bottom half of the nation's wealth distribution saw their income slump for the first time in decades, unquote. And here's a tip to all journalists. Tell us who is doing the thing. Don't just say that people saw the thing happen. Who made it happen? Why is it happening here? The top level salaries don't just rise while the bottom level salaries slump. They are directly connected. And to be fair to Jiang, the connections are better made further down the article. But to be in the 1% right now, your annual salary needs to be $579,100. When you disaggregate the 1%, the incomes go even higher. The richest 0.1% got raises of 17.4%, and the richest 0.01% got raises of 25.7% in a single year. Now, I'm saying raises here because that's how we talk about income, but let's be clear, we're actually talking about theft. Jiang notes that, quote, 10.4% of all income earned by Canadians in 2021 went to 1% of its people, the highest level posted since 2015. The increase in income isn't just from salary, though. There were increased capital gains, likely thanks to the, quote, booming housing market, unquote, which is another form of theft, though salary increases were pretty high, too, with the richest of the richest topping out at 34.5% salary increases in 2021 alone. Think about what happened to your salary in 2021. Did it increase by 34.5%? I think not. The bottom 50% of Canadians, yes, 50%, not 1% or 5%, the bottom 50% earned an average of just $21,000. This amount fell by $700 in 2020. And just like the food bank story, this one ends with no comment or questioning or mentioning of politicians. It's just, it is what it is. But one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because the most common question I get is where do you get your news, which is always kind of a proxy question for where do you get your analysis? And the answer to that question is in stories like this, in seeing just how vile the gap is between the rich and the poor and knowing very well That when pot store workers are on strike for 1.5 years just to make $3 more per hour, or when TVO workers are on strike for 11 weeks just to barely make 2% annual more in wages, we can see how these forces operate. They all operate in the service of the rich while imposing poverty on an ever-growing pool of people who are then rushing to the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto to help them afford to exist. This article doesn't get into any of the political reasons for why we're here. It doesn't mention taxation rates or or taxation levels. It doesn't mention what is comprising that 1% of richest people. Who are they? Where are they located? None of that. It's just, again, another summary of another report. That's useful, but it's not that useful because, again, it leaves us with shaking our heads going, what are the options for us to do anything in this situation? And finally, international news now to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where rebels have recaptured the village of Kinshise. 
The village is in the east, and it's where the UN accuses the March 23rd movement of killing some 170 people last year, since it's been largely deserted. Recall that M23 operates mostly in North Kivu province. The group is comprised mostly of ethnic Tutsis, and African News reports that they are backed by Rwanda. M23 left from Kichise last April, along with other parts of North Kivu province. Things then were more quiet for months, until October, when fighting broke out between M23 and armed groups. In Kibritsi, a town where many people have fled to get away from the fighting, people are flooding in, including Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda members dressed in civilian clothing. This group is comprised mostly of ethnic Hutus, and they have historically controlled the hills around Kichise. After the Tutsi genocide in Rwanda in 1994, the DFLR was formed by many Hutu military leaders. Those are your headlines for Wednesday, November 15th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes, it's already November 15th, so we are running into the second half of the month already. My God. I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.